The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in with me today. We have an exciting show to share with you. Um, As I have uh, come to you every week, I come to you live from Buffalo, New York, where I'm proud to serve as the CEO of the Crisis Center here. Um, And we've talked a lot through our various shows about different types of crisis work. And today we're really going to target about intervention and actually how intervention occurs um, in various types of crisis. So when a crisis does occur, uh, work of crisis centers and providers across the country and around the world uh, do their part to help intervene by providing support, assessment, education, and direct guidance on how to change behavior that can really be life-saving. But interventions can take various forms, and at time needs to be extensive to include everyone in that person's life to help them get the message of help and hope across. So I'm very excited today. My guest um, has over 35 years of experience as an interventionist, and I'm excited to have uh, Jeff Van Vonderen on the show with me today. Um, I know some of you and probably a lot of you know about Jeff, uh, but want to give you a little bit of his background. Um, Jeff is a highly sought out uh, after speaker and consultant, both nationally and internationally. Um, and for over 35 years, um, has helped individuals and families and organizations that have benefited from his skills and understanding in the areas of addiction, family systems, and recovery. Jeff was one of the featured interventionists on the A&E Network's Emmy-winning documentary series about intervention, and that show won two Emmys um, during his time there. And he's also an author of six books. A few are Good News for the Chemically Dependent uh, and uh, Soul Repair, Rebuilding a Spiritual Life, um, and many more. So um, before we get started with Jeff, we do want to open up, if you do have questions during the show, that you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. So, Jeff, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking time today to speak with me. Oh, I'm happy to, Jessica. Awesome. So, I think right off the bat, um, you've been doing this work for a long time, but could you just give us a little background of how long you've been involved in doing interventions? Well, I started in the field of recovery in 1978, uh, working at a, a... a treatment center, but interventions, <clears throat> interventions primarily since 1996. 
Okay. Okay. And so your, your background definitely um, leads to um, helping a lot of people through the years for sure. So can you just tell us, maybe thinking back to uh, your first successful intervention, could you share that story with our listeners? Well, my first successful one, actually, I was part of another person's intervention, Keith Hankinson, who was in uh, interventions a little longer than I. He asked me to go along on one of his, and it was a um, a pastor who was a sex addict and had abused all of his daughters and nieces except for one niece, and, you know, 20 years ago. And so nobody ever talked about it except that one niece finally said, that it was time to do something. So that was uh, that was an eleven and a half hour <laughs> intervention. Wow, eleven and a yeah, half it, hours. It was, and, uh, and and it was amazing. But after that, when I saw what could happen, um, I actually decided that um, I wanted to you know specialize just in that because you know I realized that I'd been doing interventions all along, just not calling it that. So if I was in a family counseling session. When we when I worked in treatment, we were always talking about the person who wasn't there because they were off out of control someplace. And then I would say, well, you know what? We need to get in the same room with them with a plan. Yes. Well, I mean, that's all an intervention is, getting in the same room with the addict with a plan. Absolutely. So I know you've had different types of experiences in the work that you've done through the years, but what type of addiction makes for the most challenging intervention? I think there's two that I think are most um, difficult, and one is uh, methamphetamines because, you know, if they're down the road with that a little bit, they are uh, they're in a state of kind of like drug-induced psychosis. So... Mm-hmm very paranoid, very suspicious, sometimes hearing and seeing things. So that's a tough one. And also eating disorders, because <clears throat> eating disorders have done more research on their problem than any any other person in crisis. You know, if, if you're an alcoholic, the research that you do is, if you like, you know, Coors better than Bud Light, you know. But eating right. disorder... People know every cal- every calorie, every carbohydrate, every you know, because they have to keep track of every morsel, and so they're really up on their homework with their problems. So it's it's tough to intervene on them too. Absolutely. Um, well, and eating disorders that that con- control that they're trying to maintain to to keep that weight off is is so intense. So that I could see how that could be a real difficult one to try to to make a change uh, for somebody. Um, so you know, you're you've been doing this work for a long time, and you you're continuing to provide interventions. Um, how how many are you doing a month? I know when we were prepping for the show, I was talking with you in between uh, different schedules that you had, how many actual interventions do you do on a monthly basis? Well, it's hard to say a number because it really goes in streaks. So, for instance, I might do four in a month and I might do none in six weeks. And uh, one time when I was living in California, I did four in ten days. Now, if that would have involved any flying anywhere, obviously I couldn't have done that. But, you know, people... The phone goes dead in December because this is the year that Norman Rockwell is going to show up and paint Dad not drinking, 
like he promised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then after, you know, that, they call and say, Dad, ruined Christmas, just like every other year, and now they're ready. So December's pretty dead in terms of talking to people and Easter time and stuff. And, you know, so I, I'd have to say that um, two to four a month. Okay. Well, and that's interesting, the point that you made about the time of the year, because I think people try to find hope, especially around the holidays, that behavior may change, um, or at least try to keep it together uh, for the rest of the family that maybe isn't seeing these behaviors day in and day out, like some of the immediate family would. Um, well, that's, so that's, that's really interesting. That's very common. That's very yeah. common. So for instance, you know, the person's partying all summer, but they think that now school is starting, so they'll calm down. So they don't they don't do anything, and another thing about that is that about one out of every thirty people that call me actually do anything. So it, it, it's like people call and they say it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible, and they're crying and it's terrible. And I say, wow, sounds terrible. Let's do something. And they say it's not that bad. It's not that bad. So then it's not that bad. Yeah, and that takes even if it's really bad. You know what I mean? Right. Now, when you say they call, is it the individual themselves, or is it usually family that's reaching out to you? Oh, no, the individual never calls. You know, sometimes the individual calls who has seen the show, and they say, well, I need an intervention, but I don't have any family members. But see, Jessica, if they know they need an intervention, the intervention has already taken place. They just need to get help now. They need to go to treatment or a 12-step group or to social services to get referred or something. So... Um, no, it's the family, and the family calls when it's bad enough for them. Mm-hmm. When they say, it doesn't have to get any worse now, we're ready. Right, right. So actually, the family needs to hit bottom before the addict hits bottom. Interesting. It's an interesting point, right? So through your years and doing the work that you've done, um, what has changed since you started doing interventions? I mean, you shared with our listeners that your first intervention that you did was around sex abuse. Um, but what through the years, what have you seen change in the work? Well, I mean, there's a couple things. Um, one thing is that uh, the incidence in opiate addiction has gone up. Absolutely. Um, and the incidence of... Uh, pot addiction, we'll talk about that a little bit more later, that's gone up. And, uh, you know, now with the legalization of marijuana, which I could spend this whole time with about, <laughs> right. you know, it, it's gone up. So that's, that's what's changed. Um, what hasn't changed is that we're still losing the war on drugs. And what never changes is that... Um, when I do an intervention, you have somebody who needs help, doesn't think they do, and won't get it, and we want to move them to needs help and we'll get it. Mm-hmm. That's the same. You know, I mean, the family's different, the addict's different, but the dynamic is the same. Now, when, when the family is invo- obviously is involved, is the help, also required for them to to participate in your services? Like, so in addition to the individual getting the help that they need, what about support for the family? Is there, yeah. is that a requirement? Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't require that, but I certainly recommend that, you know, okay. 
Um, so when I, when I do the training day, that's the most important day, and that's the day before, and the addict's not there. And by the end of that day, um, the family members are um, pretty in touch with the fact that they need to get some help, too, and they're ready to do it, and they see where they have been trying to help, but it hasn't helped or actually hurt the situation. But here's the deal, that on the next day when the addict goes to treatment, which they do about 98% of the time, because the addict is the family's mood-altering substance, when they go to treatment, the family has such a violent mood swing in an upward direction, they forgot everything they learned the day before, and most of them don't do anything. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah. And there's so much yeah, help for it's such families a... out there. Programs just for families, plus family involvement in their addicts treatment program. So, but that's very typical, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Family now you had mentioned you had recovery mentioned recovery from their loved one, just like they the loved one needs to get in recovery from their addictive substance. Absolutely, because it's such an impact on the entire family and how they behave and their own patterns of behavior change to accommodate and sometimes uh-huh. enable those behaviors of the addict. So they need to relearn their way of living too, without that person present. Yep. Now, you had mentioned that you, obviously, um, some of the changes you've seen um, in doing the work more recently is, I mean, obviously, the opiate epidemic that we're seeing across the world is is pretty intense. Um, you know, what is that mainly what you're seeing right now in, in the requests that you're getting? I wouldn't is say dealing mainly, with heroin? but I know that the people who do the intake stuff uh, for the show, you know, in having looked over... You know, the people that are still doing that have looked over 5,000 submissions for the show. Oh, wow. Uh, 95% of the addicts, um, of the heroin addicts, started by using prescription medication. Mm-hmm. So, Vicodin, Oxycontin, Percodan, you know, stuff like that, which is just heroin and a pill. Um, and... And the vast majority of addicts under the age of 25 started by using mom and dad's opiate painkillers or grandma and grandpa's painkillers, which is kind of pretty much totally preventable if they locked their medicine cabinet. Right. Yeah. And, we, you know, I, I shared with you um, as we were kind of preparing for the show here in Buffalo and Erie County where we're located, um, we're averaging 11 overdoses uh, deaths a week. Um, yep. And this this issue is so um, widespread, and like you said, the prevention of access to medications. Yeah, it's um, amazing. We all it's, have a responsibility with that. Yeah, it's amazing. So, through the years um, in doing your work, what are things that never change? What you know, is there anything that surprises you anymore when when you're well, doing I mean, these interventions? I, about the time I say that, nothing ever changes, or I'm never surprised. I'm going to get call it surprises me right but but really you know the dynamic is the same someone needs help doesn't think they do and won't get it or they need help think they do but won't get it or they need help and keep putting together help that doesn't help to appease the family or whatever and we just want to move them to get help you know from that place right Right. Now, when you when you're doing that training day with the families, um, 
do you get a sense from that day how that intervention's actually going to the outcome of that intervention based on their behaviors? Oh yes, uh, yeah, most of most of the time. But um, what happens is that families, you know, the most important day in my mind is the first day, which is the training day, because after that we're going to know what we're going to say, what we're not going to say, what order, who's going to chase them if they run out the door. I mean, every single detail, and then the second day is the intervention. But most families, before they call me or one of my colleagues, you know, they have done many interventions over and over and over again for decades sometimes and skip the most important day, and then they don't get the answer they want. Mm -hmm. So um, families get on board and uh, don't cave in. And even if the person says no, the intervention really isn't over till they cave in. So if they keep sticking by it and, you know, if they're not going to give them money anymore and then a week later the person calls and says, I need money, and they say, no, I told you, you know, if you want to go to treatment, I'll spend money on that, and they keep doing that over and over again, actually the intervention continues. Right, right. All right, well, we have just a couple minutes till we have to go to break. I, I'm just curious um, when children are involved in the interventions, how um, that changes the dynamic or does it? Younger well, children, I'm thinking of. Obviously, the parents have the final say or the family has the final say on who should be involved. I mean, the youngest one that I ever had involved was nine years old. And in that intervention, you know, she was sitting next to her dad and um, her dad refused to get help. And um, when he did, she scooted over an inch away from him. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, did you notice what your daughter just did? And he said, no. I said, well, when you said no, she moved over farther away from you. And, you know, if you keep doing this, that distance is going to get farther and farther until the two of you aren't even in the same room anymore. And he thought about that a minute and he got help. So, I mean, you know, that in that case, the, the child didn't really say much. But it's interesting because parents or, you know, grandparents or whatever, they think they're protecting the children by not saying anything about what's right. going on. And on many occasions, when the family decides to do something, finally, the child says, what took you so long? I knew this was going on, you know, right. like... Yeah. yeah, they're very in tune to what's going on. So uh, They just don't have a language to, to describe what it is. They're feeling all the effects of it. So, you know, when a child is in the intervention training part, even if it's, like, scary the next day and we don't want them involved with the intervention, but in the training part, they, they acquire language so that it makes sense of what they're looking at and then they don't have to make up their own language. Right. Well, Jeff, we have so much to get into. Um, we're going to head into break right now. So everyone, you're, stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, my guest is interventionist Jeff Van Bonderen, and we've been talking about his experience um, in doing interventions um, with people with various types of addictions. So, um, and we have so much to learn from his his um, experiences and the work that he's done. So, Jeff, um, let's talk a little bit more about the families and the role in in interventions. How do families help with the intervention? I think I already said before, they if they get on board and, um, you know, follow the professional, because when they try to do it themselves, um, very rarely do they get the answer they want. And, and even if they do, I mean, I have people call me and say, we're going to do an intervention on dad next Thursday. Do you have any advice? Well, first of all, get a professional, even if it's not me. And second of all, what... What happens if he says yes? And they go, what? Mm. And I say, well, what do you want him to say? And they say, we want him to say yes. Okay, so what happens if he does? See, so what happens is rarely when he does say yes, then they start making all the calls and all the arrangements and all the travel and everything else that we would have made ahead of time. And by the time they do all that, the person changes their mind or got drunk and forgot they said yes or whatever. So... You know, um, if they get on board and do on the second day at the intervention what we did, the, what we practiced the day before, now I look at it like a bunch of musical instruments and they're all playing the same song, you know, get help or stop doing this or you're killing yourself or whatever, but they're playing it in different keys at different times and the addict conducts the music. So when we do the training day, we get all the instruments in the same room, learn the same song in the same key, and the next day I conduct music. And that's mm. why they work. 
Oh, that's so interesting. That's a that's a great way to to describe that, um, and I think it's an important piece that you, they have to think it through. And I think that's what when you mentioned that you know if he says yes, then what is that you do have to make sure that you have the plan in place to actually implement and take action because that moment is such a short period of time that you might be able to capture them to actually get them into the next step for treatment. So that's a really that, that's right. Good Before point. Before you even do that, get a professional because. You know, I mean, I don't know if you're a football fan, but or if you know how football works, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you do. So let's say we're on the 10-yard line. There's two minutes left. We're behind by two, and if we kick a field goal, we win. So there's a lot at stake. Well, at that point, you don't have the owner of the team, which is the person who's paying the bills, which is the parents or whoever. You don't mm-hmm. have, The owner of the team doesn't come down on the field and kick the field goal, and they don't have somebody who they thought could, you know, maybe kick pretty good because they saw it in practice, they have the person kick the field goal who only kicks field goals. And it's the same with this. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what, you know, what are things that you've seen um, that families have done that hinder the intervention? Well, the first thing that they have done is they don't follow the the training we did the day before, you know, mm-hmm. back to the musical instrument idea on the second day there are no solos and there are no there is no ad-libbing because they've been doing solos and ad-libbing for 10 years you know mm-hmm. but then they launch into that you know this is not a therapy group and it's not an argument and it's not um, jury to make people feel bad or guilty it's not a debate and it's not a discussion we're not trying to reason with anybody. You can't reason with somebody who's not thinking clearly anyway. But if they break off into that, that's not helpful. Um, it's not helpful. The most unhelpful thing is that I've actually had people hire me to do an intervention and then tip off the attic before I got there. That mm, makes it pretty yeah. difficult. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of little, little things, but mostly if they hire a professional, do what, do what they say. Right. Follow the plan that's led yep. by the professional. Absolutely. So, is there any one factor that seems most important in helping someone be successful in recovery? Well, this is where I talk about hitting bottom. You know, I've heard people say, "Don't bother doing interventions at all because unless a person hits bottom, they're not going to really change." And I agree with the hitting bottom in order to really change part. But here's the deal. If I had a rubber ball and I threw it against the floor, the place where it hits the floor is bottom, and that's because it can't go any further in that direction, and then it takes a bounce. So if you, if you don't do an intervention, then what you're going to do is you're going to be wringing your hands, hoping that the person hits bottom before they kill themselves or somebody else or end up in prison or something like that. So, um, and, the, and, you know, even if they're in prison and then they wake up, and they say, um, uh, you know, I, I get it, I'm in trouble, and they get help from the prison psychiatrist. They get a bounce, but it's not a very good bounce, mm-hmm. you know. So what the intervention does is we want to raise bottom and have them hit it tomorrow because we still have something to say about what that looks like, and they still care about what we have to say. So if we can have them hit bottom tomorrow, they're going to get a really good bounce. So basically... We want to preempt that other intervention by doing ours first. Now, right. 
back to the family question, families need to hit bottom too. Um, you know, they have to say, I've been trying to help, it didn't work, I'm not the right helper, it's bad enough, let's do something. And, um, and then, if they go to their own recovery program or whatever, and get in recovery from their addict, basically, then when they come back together again with the addict, each of them comes toward one another and adds to the relationship what they have acquired in recovery. Um, but instead what happens is that, I mean, no, what's, what's happening right now is that the addict's looking at the family and thinking if they'd change, I'd be okay, and the family's looking at the addict and says if they'd change, I'd be okay, and nobody's okay, and nobody's changing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, it's, yeah, there's just so many, there's so many layers to this type of work um, in trying to work with not only the person addicted, but the, the entire family. Uh, you know, relapse is definitely a part of um, the success stories in recovery. We, we see that at times that people do relapse. Um, when you're working with families and the addicted individual, how do you get them to understand that this is part of that process? Well, well, first of all, if a person goes to a credible treatment center for their addiction, there's going to be a relapse prevention component in that. And then if the family goes, they'll be up, brought up to speed and all those kinds of things. But here, it's a, it's, addiction is the only field in which people are about which people think this. So, for instance, let's say your, your sister had breast cancer, so you, your family sent her to the Mayo Clinic. And they and they fixed it, you know. They she's in remission. They took care of it. And five years later, it comes back. Well, your family wouldn't say, "Well, she had her chance. We're not sending her there anymore." Right. You know, they, you'd send her back. But with 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 uh, addiction, it's kind of like, well, we we gave we gave them their chance. And relapse is not that uncommon with addiction. Um. And then, you know, we don't want to help them anymore because they should have taken advantage of their first opportunity. So that's one kind of strange thinking that just happens in my field. And the other is um, you wouldn't say to your about your sister, well, the Mayo Clinic is too good. Let's just send her to Joe's Cancer Clinic down the block. I mean, addiction is one of the only... Uh, life-threatening illnesses that people are willing to take half measures with. Mm. Hmm. But they wouldn't with breast cancer. They wouldn't with with anything else. You know. So right. I mean, basically, the addict is not my client. The family is my client. The addict is the treatment of, is the client of the treatment center. But they don't have a client. So we're going to do an intervention and get them a client, and then they're. You know, relapse prevention and those kinds of issues are now the the uh, part of the treatment program. Right. And, you know, it's so interesting. You've made that making that kind of analogy about just disease in general and and how people view the issue of addiction versus other types of diseases, um, even mental illness. You know, we talk about that a lot too um, about seeing it as you know a disease and an illness and having that same kind of level of compassion about how to treat it, um, even if it is multiple times. But it but the reality is it may need multiple. times in order to have a, a true impact. 
Well, I mean, I think that addiction is pretty much looked at as a chronic disease, which means it doesn't go, you don't cure it. But if you deal, I have diabetes. That's a chronic disease. Okay? Mm-hmm. As long as I exercise and eat right, it doesn't affect me. You know, um, and I don't resent having to take, you know, like a, a sugar-reducing pill. Right. But if I thought I was cured because now I took my blood sugar this morning, it was only 90, and stopped doing everything, well, then it would come back. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yep. Now, you know, when we look at different um, situations uh, with individuals who maybe have some sort of an addiction, um, and I know in, in kind of looking at the different types of interventions you've done in past episodes of, of the show, um, more likely than not, there was some sort of past trauma of some kind that occurred in that person's life. Um, yep. Yep. And so how do you approach or address the trauma as part of, of that intervention and then ultimately yeah. getting them into recovery. Yeah. Well, um, addressing trauma is a treatment center issue. It's not my issue. Okay. The way that I address the trauma, however, is that in finding a treatment center, we find one that fits the trauma. But that's about it. So it's like this. It's like, and you've seen the show, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I know people that have been traumatized worse than those you've seen on the show that are doing better than those on the show. And I know people that have been traumatized less than those people that are doing worse. And the reason is because we are not who we are because of what's been done to us. We've, we are who we are because of how we've chosen to respond to what's been done to us. Right. So, but families typically spend an incredible amount of time analyzing and analyzing how did this happen or how did this, you know, how did they get here? And that doesn't matter in an intervention. It matters in treatment, you know. So if, do you have kids? Jessica? Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. how old is the little? Well, I have a 19-year-old stepson. All right, so when your 19-year-old stepson was five years old, if you told him don't go play on the, on the road, you could get hit by a car. Mm-hmm. And he did anyway, you wouldn't go out there and say, well, how did he get here? I wonder if he came out the garage door or the front door, or I wonder if it was a Dodge or a Ford. You'd say, there are people who deal with this. Let's get them there as soon as possible. Right. Right? And then if they have to figure out why the guy keeps running on the road all the time, well, that's their job. But our job is to get him to where the help is. Absolutely. And you probably have such a huge network throughout the, the country of different um, treatment centers that you utilize. Is there um, a process that you go through to determine who you refer to? Well, first of all, you know, interventionists think of things that families don't think of, even down to do you want to, you know, treatment's stressful enough, so do you want to send somebody somewhere in February where it's 20 below? No. It has nothing to do with the program. The program could be great. Do you want to send somebody to a program where it's 120 in August? No. It has nothing to do with the program. The program could be great. So we even think about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I have talked with, with and met um, and referred to, to so many treatment centers and the ones that I like change because staff changes or the population 
changes. You know, you don't want to send an, an 18-year-old to a place that is um, full of mid-management executives. You know, you don't want to do that. Um, but mostly the biggest criteria is do the, person, do the people I send there do well? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have anything at stake for them to go to any particular place. And somebody asked that because they think like, like some interventionists, I'm like a bounty hunter for some treatment center and I get a kickback. I, I don't, you know, I just like them and people I send there do well and that's all I have at stake. Absolutely. So the success of the outcome of their work is what's going to uh, be the most important thing for you um, in well, connecting yes. them. Mm-hmm. But then on my end, I'm trying to find one that fits. Right. And I, you know, that is such a, an important piece because, you know, that those factors do play out in a successful environment for that person. And if those, if you're putting them in an environment where, you know, those factors aren't lining up for them to be successful, then you're kind of setting them up to be well, in the beginning it, to not be successful. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, come to grips with all your issues and stuff and, and plus not using your drug of choice depending on what it is, it'd be more severe than others in terms of withdrawal. Um, That's stressful enough. So you have to be around people that aren't like you or don't think, you know, or think that you're weird for having the kind of mindset you have or, you know, whatever. Right. And I, you know, it is such, there's so many layers to think about. And I think you've touched on so many as we've, we've been talking um, that it's, it's not just a quick fix of getting, doing an intervention and getting them into treatment. There's so many pieces to think about so that when they make that step into their recovery um, and wherever they go, that that it is a successful environment that's going to support them um, because what they're going to be dealing with is difficult enough. So I think that's such an, an interesting piece that you're that you're highlighting um, for families to think about because sometimes I think you know like you mentioned earlier they might not be thinking beyond a certain point um, when they think about how to help their loved one but they really do need to be a little bit actually know ahead of time that they've done their homework and they call me and say we want so-and-so to go to such and such treatment center the only way I would say anything about that would be is if I had some really negative experiences there. But otherwise, I leave that alone, just like if a treatment center, you know, refers somebody to me, and, you know, so that the person can go to that treatment center. Unless, if I really disagree with what's going on at that treatment center, I won't even take that referral. Right, right. Well, we're we're heading into break right now, Jeff. So we have more to to get into in our in our last segment. But I just want to remind folks that um, there is a national resource you can reach out to, which is called the SAMHSA.gov, which is S A M H S A dot gov. And if you go to that website, you can search for uh, behavioral health treatment uh, centers throughout the country. So just a resource to give to our listeners today as we're talking. Um, so stay tuned. You're listening to the journey stories of crisis and hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments 
tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers, will motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O. Voice America at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone. And um, I've been joined today by interventionist Jeff Van Vonderen, who's been talking with us um, about his work um, in the field of helping individuals with addiction. So, Jeff, I, I'd like to talk a little bit, um, as a former pastor, um, how does spirituality help people in their recovery? Well, I mean, I think spirituality is really important. And, you know, if you think about the the concept of spirituality in Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, it, they talk about God as you understand them. And God for the addict is a drug. Everybody has a higher power. And for addicts, it's the drug or the or the lifestyle addiction or whatever. That's what they're turning to to meet their needs you know, and solve their problems and everything else. Um, I've been trying to smuggle recovery into the church for 35 years, and it's a tough crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest objection that people I've, I've come across in the church is that whole thing with higher power, because they, they have an understanding of God, which is their understanding, and they think that everybody should have that. And so, consequently, a lot of times if I do a seminar in a church especially if they object to 12 steps and God as you understand them. I say, well, let me ask you a question. I want you to really raise your hands, okay? How many of you here do not have a relationship with God as you understand them? Nobody raises their hand. Everybody has a relationship with God as they understand them, but they want want the addicts to have that same, you know, God instead Mm -hmm. of just a higher power, because the higher power they have right now is drugs, and that's not a very higher power. Right. You know, it's a tough crowd. And um, the, other, the other thing that's not helped, been helpful in the church is that um, the whole sin and sickness debate. You know, if you approach it as a sin, that makes it about a behavior, which means there's a behavior that fixes it, which is don't use. Well, that's called sobriety. And sobriety and recovery are not the same thing. Sobriety is don't use. You know, if you don't want your loved one to use, lock them in a closet with a doctor for a week, and at the end, they're not using, and nothing is solved. Recovery is about living skills and healing and quality of life and, uh, uh, you know, getting current with issues instead of carrying all, all your issues around and medicating them every, every day. So it's a bigger issue than that. 
Um, so I, I'm going to tell you a joke, and we'll go to the next question. <laughs> Absolutely. Go ahead. When you go fishing, how many fundamentalists, why do you always take two instead of just one? I don't know. Well, if you take one fundamentalist, he drinks all your beer, but if you take two, they don't touch it. <laughs> well, it's such an interesting piece of the conversation for sure, because, <laughs> okay. you know, I know when we talk about spirituality and whatever that means to, to that individual, it is important that they're they're thinking about kind of something beyond themselves to to help provide support and and maybe some strength that they can't get from those around them. So it's just it's well, just know, an interesting discussion. In you know, one of the we did the 12 steps in my group and we came to the higher power steps and my only requirement, you know, cuz I have a bias, I mean, I have a higher power and I can name who it is, but I couldn't say, well, if you're going to make it through group, you got to have my higher power. I just wanted people to have a higher power that was actually higher. Right. So in other words, the doorknob's not higher. Or right. the lake, is that's not a higher power. Get one that's higher. The group is higher. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because right now, their higher power is their drug addiction or their eating disorder, or that's their higher power, and we need to get a better one. Right, right. It's a great point. Now, with the extreme situations that so many communities are facing with the opioid epidemic, what do you think communities need to focus on to have an impact in intervening with this crisis? Because so, it's really be a community crisis um, with so many people involved. Is there any thoughts or in your work recommendations you make to individual communities about how to address this? I think that communities need to be on the same page from top to bottom. So from the legislators to the first responders to the judiciary and then the general public, they need to be on the same page. And that uh, caregivers need to know about each other because a lot of times you have caregivers that aren't even familiar with other caregivers in the same community. And And then people need to be made aware of what caregivers are out there. Um, the newest project I'm involved with, actually, is called um, Interventionist Mobilizing Communities. And that's with uh, Candy Finnegan, Ken Seeley, and Donna Chavu from the show. And we're, tra- gonna, we're traveling around, and we're doing meetings with, um, you know, judiciary and, and, and government types in, in the morning and in the afternoon first responders, police, EMT, stuff like that, social services, and in the evening, a a town hall for the public, open to the public. And so, um, you know, if you're interested in sponsoring that, it sounds like Buffalo could use one. Maybe that the host is you, you, Jessica. Yeah, actually, I would love to talk to you about that. That's a great recommendation. You know, we have have um, an email address, which is coming to your town at gmail.com, coming to your town, the number two, coming to your town at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, Ken and I put a little selfie movie on, on, on Facebook um, last week, you know, and it was just like, hey, we've been talking and we're trying to think of some ways that maybe we could help save more addicts' lives. And maybe we're thinking we might put something together and come into communities and kind of network people and 
and train people on everything else. And um, so far, I mean, like today, so this is like five days old, what I'm telling you. We have 360 people from different cities have responded. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's. I know, it's amazing. It is amazing, and it just shows how every community is, this, you know, it is so impacted um, by this epidemic. And, and I feel, you know, I know for us here in, in, in our area, you know, the trauma of this epidemic is something that's going to be long-term um, with the loss and just the impact that um, we're well, seeing. Well, let me also give you, let me also give you, put in a plug for drug court, okay? Um, mm-hmm. Drug court is the legal system um, attempting and successfully in almost every case I know about um, sending the person in a therapeutic direction instead of a punitive direction. You know know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, getting them linked. And and so the person, you know, can can become, they they get into the system by... by, um, you know, committing a crime or series of crimes. And basically what drug court does is if they come in, you know, uh, let's say they're on drugs and they rob a 7-Eleven. Basically what drug court says is, well, now I don't know which person you are. You know, you're either an addict who likes to steal things or a, or, or a felon who likes to use. So why don't you just tell us which one you'll be and we'll send you in the right direction. Right. And people choose drug court because, you know, and, and maybe it's not for the right reason, but, you know, maybe it's just to get the court off their case or avoid something. But people don't usually go to treatment for the right reason. They go to because their wife is going to divorce them or because the judge is going to say a scary thing or, or I'm only going to ha- make you happy, Jessica, so there, you know, like that. Right. But even if they start the, pro- the process for the absolute worst reason, that means that tonight they're in range of life because last night they are in range of death. So I don't care why they start the process. Mm-hmm. Just really get in the process because, you know, and then if once they're in the process, it starts helping and their mind is clear and they get hopeful and stuff. Well, then you get a client mm-hmm. and somebody in recovery. Right, so that they can think about it with a clearer mind, like you said, um, the positives that they have in front of them instead of the challenges that they've been dealing with with their addiction. Addicts are living Groundhog's Day. Mm-hmm. If you ever saw that movie, you know, they yep. wake up today and they go, my life sucks, I hate this, I have to change, I got to do something. They don't know what to do. So they live today like yesterday and then they wake up tomorrow and they go, well, this sucks, I got to do something. They don't know what to do. So they live tomorrow like today over and over and over again. But what if there was something they could do? So when we do an intervention, the family shows up and we actually know something to do. And when drug court gets involved, they know that there's something that they can actually do. And they don't have to live Groundhog's Day anymore. Right. Gives them another opportunity to to look towards for sure. In your in your work cuz you you travel everywhere, is there any particular communities that you've seen that have been very successful? I mean, in in tackling some of these issues, is there models out there that people should be looking at um in how to as a community intervene with these types of crises? Well, I mean, the most convenient answer that I can give you rather than getting into naming different communities is ones that have drug court. Okay. That that's a that is 
people get there because of the actions of first responders who, you know, to a crime or to an overdose or, you know, whatever. They get into that system, and that system sends them in a therapeutic direction, just like when I do an intervention, I'm trying to send them in a therapeutic direction as well. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the easiest answer for me to give. So if you want to Google cities with drug courts, whatever list you get is going to be doing more than other cities. Okay. And I think, as you mentioned, I'm a fan, with the- I'm a fan of drug courts. I don't know if you can tell. Yeah, well, when we we have we have a pretty successful one here, well, and sure. I think it's um, you know it has been extremely helpful, and it is so critical who who the judges of that court for sure, and in making sure that they're helping to provide that linkage and support um, for well, individuals who are coming. Have a therapeutic mindset and has a punitive mindset shouldn't be the judge at drug court anyway, right? Right. Now, with the, and I think it's interesting that the, the kind of traveling um, piece that you, you're talking about with your future project really dives deep into the different layers of your community um, that have, every, that everybody has a role in helping to address this. That isn't yeah, just... It's about uh, getting them all on the same page so that people aren't working, to, uh, working against each other, even unintentionally. Right. Right. You and know, having that universal message. is that... I went to a conference several years ago, oh, 30 years ago, in Minneapolis, and it was for caregivers and helping professionals and all that. And what I discovered was that everybody diagnoses the, the client as something they've been trained to deal with. So for the police, it was a legal problem, that, and the judges, it was a legal problem. For the psychiatrist, it was a psychiatric problem. Addiction, people thought everything was addiction. You know, like that. Mm-hmm. Pastor said it was all a sin. Everybody diagnosed it because, unfortunately, and sadly, whoever gets the client gets the money. Right. But what communities need to realize is that it's more cost-effective to everybody I just mentioned and to the whole community to have people get well than to have people be sick. It just is. You know, it's, Absolutely. it's, it's less expensive for somebody to go to treatment and get better and become a functioning citizen than it is to have them to show up for random drug tests and have a, uh, you know, a, a collar on their ankle and, you know, keep track of them and have a social worker or a probation officer tracking them. It's just, it's just always more cost effective to be well than not. And I think that's a great way to 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 end our our conversation today. That it does take you know everybody has a stake in in having a successful community. Um, can you just share briefly if if people are interested in contacting you for an intervention, how would they reach out to you? Well, I have a website. Uh, it's my name dot com. So Jeff Van dot com, and there's a place to go on there to schedule an intervention. Uh, my phone number is nine four nine six seven seven eight three five four. Great. Or you could, you know, if you want to help do something for your community, you could send us an email at coming to your town at gmail dot com. So I mean, there's several ways. Okay. I also in those books, you know, that I've written in the back of it, it tells how to contact me. So. Um, okay. But but, I'll, but what I'll tell you is that if you're going to go on my website and buy the books. Get them from Amazon. They're cheaper. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. Well, good. A good last, a, a good last tip for today. So, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and, and just oh, sharing your. To your experience. And um, thank you everyone for tuning in today to the journey stories of crisis and hope. Please join me every Tuesday, 8 a.m. Pacific time, 11 a.m. Eastern time. And so thank you again for tuning in and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to the journey stories of crisis and hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.